The Bradford Exchange presents The Classic Radio Theater with your host, Carl Amari. Countdown for blast off. X minus one. Yes, it's Maxwell House Coffee Time, starring George Burns and Gracie Allen. Richard Diamond, private detective. The Johnson Wax Program with Fibber McGee and Molly. Suspense. It's time once again for another comedy episode of Our Miss Brooks. Dragnet. We offer you escape. Kraft presents the Great Gildersleeve. Yeah. I'm that man. Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. Good evening, friends of the Inner Sanctum. The Jack Benny Program. Welcome, everyone, to episode 62 of the Classic Radio Theater. Each week, the Bradford Exchange and participating sponsors bring you three hours of the Classic Radio Theater, featuring programming from the golden age of radio. This time, we'll hear two mystery episodes of Suspense, one of them starring Ronald Reagan. We'll begin after this short break. Offering high-tension drama and a stellar cast, Suspense was a landmark program from radio's golden age. For 20 years, the program offered tales well-calculated to keep you in suspense. With audience numbers in the millions, Suspense ranked as one of the most listened-to dramas on the air from 1942 until 1962. Known as radio's outstanding theater of thrills, it focused on suspenseful stories starring the biggest names in Hollywood. Actors jumped at the chance to appear on Suspense, including Cary Grant, James Stewart, Alan Ladd, Henry Fonda, Humphrey Bogart, Betty Davis, and Orson Welles. Oftentimes, celebrities were cast against type, including Jack Benny, who played a Martian, and Frank Sinatra, who played a psychopathic killer. Scripts were by John Dixon Carr, Lucille Fletcher, James Poe, Ray Bradbury, and many others. Running more than 20 years, Suspense aired nearly 1,000 radio broadcasts. It made the transition to television in 1949, but it was much better suited for radio, where the theater of the mind could run free. Time now for the first of two mystery episodes of Suspense. This first story stars Ronald Reagan, the 40th president of the United States, before his political years, when he made a living as an actor. Here's Circumstantial Terror on Suspense from March 8th, 1954. Autolite and its 98,000 dealers bring you Mr. Ronald Reagan in tonight's presentation of Suspense. Tonight, Autolite presents the story of a man who wanted to apologize for threatening a stranger. And when he got there, the stranger was dead and the police were waiting. It's called Circumstantial Terror. Our star, Mr. Ronald Reagan. This is Harlow Wilcox with a $100,000 reminder. That total will be given to recognized charities in cash through the Autolite family charity drawing. And you may be one of 25 persons selected to name your own church, hospital, or any other local or national recognized charity to share in this huge sum. There's no obligation except printing your name and address, but your favorite recognized charity may share in thousands of dollars. To tell you how important this is to his organization, we are privileged to present General George Kenney, president of the Arthritis and Rheumatism Foundation. 
This generous Autolite offer will greatly aid the work of such groups as the Arthritis and Rheumatism Foundation. If you are one of the 25 persons chosen to name your favorite organization, I hope you will remember the 10 million people who suffer the pain and the crippling of arthritis. They will be most grateful for your help. Good luck to you in this Autolite family charity drawing. To enter this drawing, just visit any of these Autolite family car showrooms and fill out a registration form. DeSoto, Hudson, Plymouth, Studebaker, Dodge, Willis, Nash, Packard, Kaiser, or Chrysler. It may mean thousands to your favorite recognized charity. So sign up tomorrow. And now, Autolite presents Circumstantial Terror, starring Mr. Ronald Reagan, hoping once again to keep you in... Suspense. I wasn't the only one who was mad at him. All the other guys felt just about like I did. About Curly Weber, that is. You see, if he hadn't let the pressure go too high, we'd have all been in good shape right now. As it was, the boiler blew up and wrecked the cleaning plant where I worked. The owner collected the insurance money and got out of the business, which left us with no jobs. After a few months of looking around for a job, I was in a pretty bad way. Then I connected. Only trouble was it wouldn't start for three weeks. By now I was broke, irritable, and mad at the world. So I wasn't what you'd call a pleasant type fellow when I walked into this liquor store for a package of smokes about 11 o'clock one night. So, what else could I do, Eddie? There I was with egg on my face and that phony salesman telling me I was going to have to take what he gives me or get nothing at all. What do you have to buy from him for? This outfit has the distributor tied up. 25% of what I make, I make from his scotch. I'd like a pack of cigarettes. Hold your horses, mister. I got another customer. So, I check around town to see if maybe I can get the scotch somewhere else. How'd you make out? Go ahead. Take a guess. Come on, mister. Get off the dime. Just give What's me a... What's the matter with you? Ain't you got no manners? Just give me a pack of cigarettes and stop shooting off your mouth. Me shooting off my mouth? Look, buster... I got a pretty good trade right now, so why don't you take your two-bit sale somewhere else? I don't even like the way you look. Listen, smart guy. I've taken a lot of lip from guys like you in the last few months. One more crack out of you and I'll smear you all over the joint, do you hear? All right, mister, all right. Take it easy. Sam don't mean no harm. That's just the way he talks. Then let him talk to somebody else like that. Why don't you give me cigarettes, Sam? We can talk some more after he leaves. Okay. What kind do you want? Mister? I don't want any kind. I just want you to remember something. Next time you see me, you'd better cross over to the other side of the street. It'll be healthier for you. Remember that. I went back to my room and poured myself a drink. No doubt about it, I'd acted like a fool. But four months of being unemployed didn't exactly develop an even temper. It was a half hour before I realized I still hadn't got any cigarettes, and another 15 minutes before I could talk myself into going back to the liquor store to apologize for losing my temper. The street was dark, and the only light on the whole block came from the glowing window of the liquor store. I still wasn't sure what I was going to say to Sam when I got there, but I knew I'd fix everything up all right. I'd gotten to within about a hundred feet of the store when I noticed a black or what seemed to be black coupe parked in front of the store. Just about the time I noticed it, I heard a shot. 
seemed to come from the direction of the store. I stopped for a second. Then a guy rushed out of the store right in front of me, jumped into the car, and before I could do anything, it roared down the darkened street out of sight. I ran to the store and looked in. Nobody around. Then I looked behind the counter. The guy I'd argued with, Sam, was on the deck. I could tell right away that it was a waste of time to check his pulse, but I did it anyway. He was dead, all right. Then I started for the door to call the cops. Hey, what's going on? Who? What did I tell you, Irv? I saw who did it. He ran out the door as I was coming up the street. Come on. Grab him, Irv. He did it. That's the guy I was telling you about. Come on, buddy. Let go. I tell you, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. I saw the guy that did. Let go. Hold on to him, Irv. That's the guy Sam had to throw out of the store. He was casing the joint. That's what he was doing. Let go of him. Hold him good, Irv. I'm going for the cop. Don't worry. He ain't going nowhere. As I was getting up to go after the police, these two guys rush in and hold me. I didn't do it, I tell you. He's lying, officer. We'll find out if he's lying when the guys from Homicide get here. I don't even own a gun. That gun laying by Sam's body is Sam's gun. Looks to me like this guy shot him with his own gun. You don't shut your mouth. Easy, does it? What happens when the guys from Homicide get here? You want my honest opinion, mister? Yeah, sure. I didn't put the cuffs on you for laughs. I think you've had it, buddy. It's only an opinion, but from what I can see here, what I've gotten from these witnesses, you're nailed, buddy. Nailed good. And I was. By the time it was presented to the grand jury, the state had a real good case prepared against me. The liquor store owner's gun only had his prints on it, which made it look as if I'd tried a phony hold-up and jumped him when he drew it. And there was money scattered all over the store, which made it look as if I'd been surprised before I had a chance to get away. That guy, Eddie, who'd been in the store when I had my argument, wouldn't let me up. He pounded nails in my coffin every time he opened his mouth. If I'd had a job when all this happened, that I had trouble giving me a motive. And being broke and unemployed made it look that much worse. As a result, I wasn't surprised when the grand jury came through with an indictment for first-degree murder. As far as I was concerned, it was all over but the hanging. Uh, how are you? You, uh, Frank Thompson? Right now, I wish I weren't, but I am. Who are you? I'm Ernest Gibbons. I've been assigned as public defender in your case. You're wasting your time. Why? Are you guilty? No, I'm not. Well, then I'm not wasting my time. <clears throat> Mind if I sit down? Go ahead. Well, I think you got most of the facts straight in my mind. Now, I want you to tell me in your own words what happened. Did you read the transcript of the inquest? Yes, I did. That's all there is to it. Uh-huh. Well, look, Frank, I'm here to help you if I can. Now, don't make it tough for me. I think we can beat this if you help me. How? Well, first, let's forget that story about running in after the storekeeper was shot. Now, nobody believes that. Would you believe it if I tell it to you again? Should I? Yes, because it's the truth. Well, can you describe the man you saw running out? More or less. Well, what do you mean by more or less? Well, I got a pretty good look at his face. He had a mustache. But I couldn't tell you how tall he was or how much he weighed. It seemed to me to be just medium all around. Uh, well, you said at the inquest that he got in a car and he drove... Now, can you describe the car? It's a black coupe. What year? Don't know. How about the make? Couldn't tell. It's too dark. Mm-hmm. The license number? All or any part of the license number? None of it. 
And all his lights were out. Mm-hmm. In other words, if you wanted to lie, this would be a pretty good way of blaming someone the police couldn't possibly track down, wouldn't it? I guess so. But I'm not lying. All right, now let's see. The state has set the trial for a week from today. In a hurry, aren't they? <laughs> I guess they figure that they've got you sewed up. The papers have public opinion running pretty high against you. You know, the man left a wife and three little kids. Well, that's tough. Real tough. It was a couple of days later that Ernie came to me and said they were selecting the jurors who'd hear the case. This was a part of the law I didn't know a thing about, so when he said I had a right to sit in in the selection, I went along, only to get out of the cell for a few hours. Well, to put it simply, it's more of an interview than anything else. It also gives us a chance to get jurors we think might be more easily swayed to our way of thinking. I'm to the point where I don't care much one way or another. I just wanted to get out of the cell for a little while. Maybe I'd be better off if I just plead guilty and get it over with. Oh, now you're talking foolish, boy. There's a lot that can happen in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, it's all going to happen to me. <laughs> Some of it might be good, you know. Don't hold your breath. Yeah, over here, Frank. Just sit down, right? Okay. I'm going to try to get as many women as I can on the jury. You're a pretty good-looking boy. It helps sometimes. What about the prosecution? Don't they have anything to say about it? Well, I doubt if they challenge more than once or twice. Now, they think they have such a strong case, it doesn't matter much to them who's on the jury. They're right, too, aren't they? Well, that remains to be seen. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh, here they come. Yeah. Right now, I'd trade places with any given one of them. I don't think you'd get any takers. <laughs> oh, well, they not as many women as I'd like to have seen. Ernie. Ernie. What's up, Bob? The guy with the gray suit. Where? Over there, next to the dame with the fur coat. Oh, yeah. Well, what about him? Don't challenge him. What? Don't challenge him. That's the guy. What guy? That's the guy that killed the shopkeeper. That's the guy I saw running out of the store that night. Get him on the jury. Don't let him get away. I don't want to die for what he did. is bringing you Mr. Ronald Reagan in Circumstantial Terror, tonight's presentation in radio's outstanding theater of thrills, Suspense. Hey, Charlie, what Nash model is this? Well, this is the new Nash Statesman, Harlow. You know, this year, Nash offers the widest range of models and prices in history. And you can get such optional features as power steering, power brakes, and even power lift windows. And of course, Harlow, Nash has Autolite equipment, too. And Autolite is proud of its long association with Nash and Nash dealers everywhere. That's why we're privileged to salute Nash as a distinguished member of our Autolite family. Distinguished is the word for the new Nash Harlow and advanced, too. The 1954 Nash gives you greater safety with exclusive unitized Nash air flight construction. Greater economy on regular gasoline. Greater comfort with a new exclusive Nash all-weather eye air conditioning system that heats, ventilates, and cools at your command. And Harlow, next week, 
Nash introduces a completely new kind of car. Watch for it. Okay, Charlie. And thanks for the ride. Always a pleasure, Harlow, especially in a new Nash. And now, Autolite brings back to our Hollywood soundstage Mr. Ronald Reagan in Elliot Lewis's production of Circumstantial Terror, a tale well calculated to keep you in suspense. It was tough sitting through the selection of the jury, especially when I knew that the prosecution could, for no apparent reason, disqualify the man I'd pointed out to Ernie. If he was the man I'd seen run out of the liquor store the night of the shooting, then he had to be where we could keep tabs on him. Ernie sacrificed a couple of his limited number of preemptory challenges just to make sure the guy came up for selection. When he did, there was no objection on either side, and we had him. Later that afternoon, when Ernie came to my cell, we tried to figure out what we were going to do with him. Well, now that we've got him, uh, what are we going to do with him? Well, it's your job to figure out, Ernie. You're the lawyer. Yeah, we're no better off now than we were at the beginning. We haven't got a shrewd of evidence to substantiate your claim. I saw him. Isn't that enough? Well, you're on trial, not him. Well, supposing I get up in court and say he's the man, what would happen? I'd probably declare it a mistrial and discharge the jury. And go to work on another trial. But you'd stay in jail. Wouldn't they question him? Maybe. It was pretty obvious he'd say you were off your rocker. Remember, Frank, you're the one who's accused. Defending yourself by accusing him just on your say-so is pretty flimsy. Who'd believe it? Would you? Well, couldn't you do it? Couldn't you tell someone? Proof, Frank. Proof. What can I possibly do but quote you? What am I going to do? Just what we're doing. Go through with this trial. Then I'll appeal no matter what the verdict is, and see if we can rope our friend into making a mistake. But he'll duck as soon as the trial's over, won't Probably, he? but at least uh, he'll be around while the trial is on. Now, if you cause a mistrial, he'll be gone a lot faster. It isn't fair. I know he's This is man. a court of law. The burden of proof is on the accuser. What real proof have they got against me? They don't have to catch a man in the act of murder to convict him of it. Circumstantial evidence can be strong enough and... And in your case, it seems to be. It's driving me nuts to think that this guy's got to help send me away for a murder he committed. Yeah, they haven't sensed you yet, boy. Let's see what happens. And if it does happen? Maybe we'll have something I can use to ask for a new trial. If we get into trouble. Where's the trial going to be? Well, Judge Thurston will preside, I think. Let me see, that'll put it in the uh, City Hall Annex. Where's that? In the Annex, that's a small building on the north side of the City Hall. That's uh, next to the parking lot. Why? Just asking, that's all. Frank. Yeah? Don't try any grandstand plays. Any tangle with the jury might result in a mistrial, and I don't think that's a good idea. Okay. I won't mess with them. That's good. Well, I gotta get going. Going home? No, I guess so. Tell me something, Ernie. Sure. Well, what do you want to know? What are my chances, Ernie? And don't kid me. I wouldn't kid you, Frank. I, I don't know right now, but... Uh, I'd sure be lying if I said they were good. Thanks. That's what I wanted to know. That's what I liked about Ernie. When he asked for the truth, he gave it to you. After he left, I lay back in my cot and thought about the whole mess. Everything had happened so fast, I really hadn't had time to take stock of my position. Now I did. 
And what I came up with made me want to beat my brains out against the steel bars out of sheer frustration. It wasn't anybody's fault. If you discounted the guy that actually did the killing, I didn't have any beef with the law or the people who were carrying out the law. It was just that they didn't know they were going to convict an innocent man. I guess I lay there thinking about ways to clear myself. Most of the ways were more daydreaming than anything else. I finally came up with the conclusion that anything I did was going to have to really go from the time I started it. There wouldn't be time for talk or reason. In the morning, I got dressed and ready for the first day of the trial. When I got to the courtroom, I was seated beside Ernie. Then came the time when papers were being shuffled and everyone was getting set for the opening arguments. Now, then you take it easy, Frank. We're going to fight real hard. You know what a backfire is? You mean like when a car... No, I mean like when you're caught in a bad brush fire without any water. I'm not with you, kid. Uh, What are you going for? You light another fire downwind, let it give you a big burn spot to stand in while the main fire goes past. You explain it to me later, Frank. The judge will be here in a minute or two, and I want to get my paper straightened here. (laughs) He doesn't like to see an unprepared attorney. Listen to me, Ernie. I'm in the path of a real big fire right now. I know you are, boy. I know, but what... So I got to try a backfire. A guy can get killed in a backfire, but at least you got to take a chance. What are you trying to tell me? Now, say it fast, because the You'll hear from me. Stick with me, Ernie. I'm a pretty good guy, but I'm in real bad trouble. And I'm the only guy that can get me out of it. What what are you going to do? This! Look out! He's making a break! Get out of my... Wait! The only thing I could do. I couldn't sit by while 12 people tried to make up their minds whether I must die for a murder I didn't commit. As I went out the window, I folded my arms in front of my face to keep from being cut to ribbons with a broken glass. I lit feet first in the parking lot and started running. I didn't know where I was going. All I knew was I had to get away fast. By the time everyone got organized, I'd pretty well lost myself in the alleys of the city. I got to a place where they were putting up an office building and ducked into the sub-basement, crawled into a corner and stayed there. Somewhere around midnight, I slid out and started to the only guy in town I knew wouldn't turn me in as soon as he saw me, Ernie Gibbons. When I got there, his place had a light on in the kitchen, so I went around the back. Hi, Ernie. Let me in. Well, come on, Harry. What are you doing here? If they find out about this, I'll be disbarred. I won't stay long. Wait till I turn the light off. Now sit right there, Frank. And don't move around too much. Thanks. Okay. Tell me why you did it. I told you this morning in court. This is my backfire. I couldn't just stand around while they made up their minds whether to kill me or let me rot in jail. I didn't do it. I'm going to get the guy that did. Oh, then they'll really have you. And they'll have me for something I did, not something I didn't do. Well, why'd you come here? I need an address. An address? You mean the guy with the mustache? Yeah. Got anything on him? He isn't around, Frank. How do you know? By the time I got through with the mess you left behind, it was pretty late in the day. What are you talking about? Just this. We knew he'd duck out as soon as the trial was over. But during the trial, we might have been able to work something. That's why I warned you about causing a mistrial. This afternoon, I went over to the address he'd given. And he moved out. 
A few hours after your break. Any forwarding address? Oh, don't be so naive. The man is a murderer. I don't think he knows you saw him running out of the store, but he isn't taking any chances. He's lost, Frank. And you're in a bigger jam than before. What do I do now? Oh, yes, you tell me. I won't give myself up. Well, that's up to you. You're on your own now. What's your position in this? Well, I should turn you in. But you won't. Oh, you're a cinch. They have the book thrown at you when they get you. I gotta think. Yeah, sure. Ernie, do something for me, will you? I might. What is it? I'm a pretty hungry man. Could you rustle me up some food? Oh, sure, Frank. I'll fix you some food. Ernie. Yes? What about that witness that claims he saw me casing the place, that Eddie character? Yeah, well, what about him? He's the state's number one witness, isn't he? Well, I guess so. What's he got against me? Why is he trying so hard to get me? Well, I think that for the first time in his life, he's somebody and he's going all out to prove it. I'm going to see him. No, no, you're not. You're in enough trouble. Lay off of him. Give me his address, Ernie. Well, you're out of your mind. Give me his address. I want to talk to him. Oh, but Frank... I know you've got it. You've got the addresses of all the witnesses. Get it. Okay. It's here in my briefcase. Hey. What? Well, that's funny. I, I never noticed this before. Noticed what? What are you mumbling about? The witness against you lives right over the liquor store where the guy was shot. Ernie. Yeah? Just a thought. But he's the fellow that accused me of casing the shop. Suppose it was the other way around. Suppose he was casing it for our friend with the mustache. Well, you'd have to prove a connection between the two men. But So how are you going to do that? I don't know. I'll figure that out when I get there. Oh, I can't let you do that, Frank. Don't try to stop me. Well, you could get picked up on the way there. I'll be there in a few it's minutes. three or four miles from here. You're lending me your car. I am? Yeah. Give me the keys. Okay. Here. So long, Ernie. I wish I could stop you because... Don't try it. I wouldn't want to hurt you. Oh, well, thank you. So long. Eddie Wilson, come on, open up. I don't know any... But you know me, Eddie. Thompson! That's right, Frank Thompson, fall guy. What do you want from me? I want to know why you're so anxious to see me burn. You tried to hold Sam up and killed him, that's why. You know better than that. I do? What other reason would I have? Hold it down to a roar, Eddie. I gotta get some sleep. Come on in, mister. You with the mustache. Thompson? Yeah, that's what Eddie said when he saw me. All right, Eddie, what's this guy doing here? He's, uh, 
He's my brother, but it don't mean... Cozy, huh? One guy in a witness box and one guy in a jury. You really got it made. Yeah. What are you going to do about it? Make you tell the truth. What are you talking about? Why'd you kill him? Need the money? Get out of here. After you write me a confession. So I can burn instead of you? That's right. You're wasting your time. Am I? Get the cops, Eddie. Now! Get up, you. Am I wasting my time? Am I? I don't write nothing. You won't. Okay. Okay, now. Start writing. Here come the cops. You're dead. No, mister, you are. If the cops get here before you finish writing, I'll kill you. If I'm going to fry for something you did, I'm going to be sure you go with me. Now make up your mind. You want to die right now or take a chance with a jury? Okay. Give me a pen. you understand why I sent for the cops, Frank. I didn't want you to get in any more trouble. Oh, sure, that's all right. <laughs> well, how's it feel? Mighty good. It's a pretty town when you don't have to look at it from behind steel bars. Yeah. What are you going to do now? Well, looks like I'll be able to make that job I told you about. Only a few more days to wait. Where will you be staying? I don't know. You got any money? Enough. You got any money? No. Then it's settled. You'll stay with us until you get on your feet. All right. <laughs> you heard me. Okay. Lend me a quarter. <laughs> sure. What for? How to buy a pack of cigarettes from a machine. Suspense. Presented by Autolite. Tonight's star, Mr. Ronald Reagan. Congratulations on an excellent performance, Ronald. Well, thanks, Harlow. Say, uh, what about this $100,000 Autolite family charity drawing? Am I eligible? Well, if you're over 18, you are. I'm eligible. <laughs> well, all you do is visit any Autolite family car dealer showroom, print your name and address on a registration form, and have the dealer sign it. And if you're one of the 25 people selected... You can name your favorite church, hospital, or any other local or national recognized charity to share in $100,000. And all I do is fill out a form? You mean there are no puzzles to solve or anything like that? That's right, Ronald. Nothing to solve, buy, or try. And where do I register? At any of the following showrooms. DeSoto, Hudson, Plymouth, Studebaker, Dodge, Willis, Nash, Packard, Kaiser, or Chrysler. Sounds like a wonderful opportunity, Harlow. Thank you, Ronald Reagan. Friends, you can help your favorite recognized charity share in $100,000 just by signing your name and address. So why not sign up tomorrow? Next week, the story of a cross-country train trip during which a police officer finds himself torn between his assignment and his personal feelings for... The Girl in Car 32. Our star, Mr. Victor Mature. That's next week on... Suspense. 
Suspense is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis, with music composed by Lucian Morrowick and conducted by Lud Gluskin. Circumstantial Terror was written for Suspense by Ross Murray. In tonight's story, Howard McNear was heard as Ernie. Featured in the cast were Vic Pern, Clayton Post, Charles Calvert, Hal Gerard, and Kurt Martell. Ronald Reagan is currently starred with Steve Forrest and Dewey Martin in the MGM production Prisoner of War. And remember next week, Mr. Victor Mature in Thomas Walsh's story, The Girl in Car 32. This is the CBS Radio Network. And that's Suspense with Circumstantial Terror, starring Ronald Reagan from March 8, 1954. Also in the cast, Howard McNear, Charles Calvert, and Vic Perrin, sponsored by Autolite, is heard over CBS. All of the classic radio shows we present on this series are direct from the master recordings. I have more than 100,000 original radio episodes under license from the owners and estates, and we make them available via digital download or on CD through our Classic Radio Club. By joining the Classic Radio Club, you'll receive 10 superior-sounding Classic Radio shows sent directly to you each month, along with detailed liner notes and photos of the radio stars. You'll receive your first 10 Classic Radio episodes for only $1, and you can cancel at any time. To learn more about the Classic Radio Club, log on to ClassicRadioClub.com. That's ClassicRadioClub.com. I'll have another episode of Suspense, a sci-fi story by Ray Bradbury, after this short break. Welcome back to the Classic Radio Theater. I'm your host, Carl Amari. This time, it's a sci-fi classic by Ray Bradbury. Children all over the world are playing a game called Invasion. Is it an innocent kid's game or something much more sinister? Here's Zero Hour on Suspense. And now, tonight's presentation of radio's outstanding theater of thrills, Suspense. Tonight, Suspense brings you a repeat performance of one of the most controversial plays ever presented over your radio. It is called Zero Hour by Ray Bradbury. Starring Miss Isa Ashdown, here is tonight's Suspense play, Zero Hour. What a game. Such excitement they hadn't known in years. Mink talked earnestly to someone near the rose bush, though no one was there. Then the two little girls, shouting, laughing at each other. Such fun. Such tremulous joy. Mink ran into the house all dirt and sweat. For her few years, she was loud and strong and definite. And her mother, Mrs. Morris, peeling vegetables at the sink, watched with amusement as her daughter threw into a sack old pots and tools and things which were relegated to child play. Oh, my goodness, Mink, what's going on? Oh, the most exciting game ever, just ever. Oh? 
It's all right. I take these things, Mom. Well, just don't dent them and it's all right. Thanks, Mom. We won't. Bye. All right, dear. Oh, what's the name of the game, dear? Invasion. Invasion? Invasion. And in the garden now, a serious concentration. Mink with an assortment of pots, pans, and wrenches, forks, spoons. And her friend Anna, a little younger, tongue in teeth, taking notes on a pad. This, this, and this. What's it say next? Wait a minute, Mink. Well, hurry up. Four, nine, seven, A, and B, and X. Four, nine, seven, A, and B, and X. A fork and a string and a hex, hex, hexagonal. A fork and a string and a, a hexagonal. What do we do next, Mr. Drill? And then Mink talking to the rose bush again. And to her own satisfaction, at least, receiving some kind of answer which she relayed to Anna. Triangle. How do you spell it? Oh, any old way. Doesn't matter. Now write beam. I haven't got triangle yet. Well, hurry. Zero hours by five o'clock. We haven't got all day. Then time out from invasion for lunch. Mink bolted down the soup and coincidentally crammed a sandwich into her mouth. Now you slow down, Mink. Whatever's waiting will wait a few minutes longer. But I can't. Drill's waiting for me. Drill? Well, that's a peculiar name. Is he a new boy in the neighborhood, dear? He's new, all right. Well, I don't think I've ever seen him. Which one is Drill? Oh, he's just around. You'll make fun. Everybody makes fun. All the kids do. Well, I don't think that's very nice. Is Drill shy? Well, yes, in a way. I don't know. I gotta go now, Mama, if we're gonna have the invasion. Now, you finish your milk, miss. Who's invading what? Martians invading Earth from up there. Oh, I see. And, um, Drill's a, a Martian? I think so. He's had a very hard time getting here. I should imagine. They couldn't figure out a way to attack Earth. How to get in or something. And Drill says they have to do it by surprise. And even get help from your enemy. Oh, a fifth column, huh? Uh-huh. And all this time they haven't been able to figure out how to attack until one day they thought of children. Well, that was bright of them. And they thought of how grown-ups are so busy, they never look under rose bushes or on lawns. Oh, that's where Drill is now, uh, under the rose bush? Uh-huh, with all his friends, too. And there's something about kids under 11 with imagination. It's real funny to hear Drill talk. Well, it must be. <laughs> you better run along out if you want to have your invasion before dark. Oh, and bath tonight. School tomorrow, you know. Drill says I won't have to take any more baths. Oh, he does, does he? And we can stay up till 10 o'clock. Well, your friend Mr. Drill had better mind his P's and Q's or I'm going to call up his That's mother. That's just it. Drill says you're dangerous because you don't believe in Martians. Just like you think Drill's a kid. Well, he's not. And they're going to let us run the world when they get in. All of us kids. And I might even be queen. Well, that's nice, dear. Now run along. Mom. What is it, dear? Mom, when the invasion comes, we'll have to get rid of you and Daddy. But I'll be sure it won't hurt very much. Well, uh, thanks. Thanks a lot. Mm-hmm. 
Hello. Hello, Mary. How are things in New York? Oh, Helen, how nice. Are you in town? Oh, no, I'm in Danbury. I was just thinking of you and thought I'd call. Oh, it's long distance, though. You shouldn't. Oh, I can afford three minutes. How's Henry? Fine. And Bill? Oh, just fine. What about Mink? Oh, wonderful. Noisier than ever. Oh, she's got a a new game now. It's taken the place of hopscotch. Invasion. Is she playing that, too? Well, yes. Are yours? Same thing. Some kind of geometric jacks, I suppose. Isn't it a screen? You know, all the kids their age are playing it up here. Timmy's got a crush on some guy named Drill. I think that's what it is. Oh, it, it must be a new password. Mink likes him, too. Well, I didn't know it got to New York. Word of mouth, I suppose. You know, kids. Funniest thing, I got a letter from my sister in Boston. She says her kids are playing it, too. It's just sweeping the country. Well, I... I wonder where they learned it. Mm, don't ask me. All I know is what Timmy told me at lunch. Zero hours at five o'clock. When? Today. That's when the invasion's going to be. Oh, these kids and their imagination. And they talked a little more. Schoolgirl friends. Casual woman talk. But Mrs. Morris was thoughtful. She was thinking of other things, of adults, of children with imagination, rose bushes, dimensions. She thought of how much she had forgotten about being a child. And she wondered about Not Mink and all the kids so who were at that moment called. playing Invasion. And a kiss for Mink. I will, and to Bill and the kids. Thanks. Bye. Goodbye. An hour drowsed by. It was three o'clock. There was an occasional hum inside the coolness of the house as a car passed outside. The street was lined with good, green, and peaceful trees. And all across the city, in other gardens, in other places, children under 11 were excitedly playing a game, talking to rose bushes and grass lawns, trees, and shrubs. Even children in apartment houses, high in the air, conferring with potted plants, cactus, and ivy. Mrs. Morris finished her housework and went to the kitchen. Oh, hello, dear. Hi, Mom. Of course, I'll get it. Pi R squared, 27. A over 56 to the 7th degree, X T7. What, dear? Oh, nothing, Mom. Oh, here you are. Thanks. How are things going? Huh? The, uh, invasion. Oh, that. Yes, that. Almost finished. When everything's right, Drill said we should be ready on time. Five o'clock? That's right. How'd you know? Helen called me from Danbury. She says that uh, Timmy's playing it, too. Hey, that's keen. I guess all the kids are, aren't they? No, not all of them. Not guys like Jimmy Wood and Bob Wilson. They're growing up and they make fun of us. They're worse than parents. They just won't believe in drill. They're so smart just because they're growing up. You'd think they'd know better. They were little only a couple years ago. Well, we'll get rid of them first. Drill says it's okay to kill them first. Aminka. I don't like that kind of talk. Do you hear me? I don't like it at all. Oh, now, Ma. I mean it. You keep on that way and there'll be no more playing. You'll have to tell Anna to go home and you'll stay inside until bedtime. I'm sorry. Well, I should think so. Thanks for the water, Mom. Uh, Mink. Yes, Ma? What did those, uh, those numbers mean? What numbers? Those numbers you were saying to yourself before. Oh, that. 
They're the things we have to do to get Grill and his friends out. That's all. Look, dear, why don't you and Anna go down to the drugstore and get some ice cream? You don't even have to use your allowance. I'll pay for it. Haven't got time, Mom. Thanks. Well, I, I'd never believe I'd hear you say that. I gotta go now, Mom. Oh, wait a minute. Uh, Mink, I, I want you to tell me the truth. What is this invasion silliness? It isn't silly. It's just a game. That's all. Mom, we're just playing an invasion. Excuse me, I gotta get back now. I'll see you later. It was a game called Invasion. Mrs. Morris's little girl, Mink, was playing it. So was Mink's friend, Anna, and all the other children under 11. It was called Invasion, and zero hour was to be at five o'clock. Mrs. Morris was disturbed. She wasn't sure why. But there was something, something about parents shutting ears and eyes to what was happening. And because she was disturbed, she did something she didn't usually do. She called her husband at the office. Hello, dear. Oh, hello, Henry. I'm sorry to bother you, but Miss Maxson said you weren't busy. Oh, not too. I should be able to get home early today. Everything all right? Yes. You all right? I'm fine. Mink? Oh, she's... Henry. What? Oh, nothing. I I just wanted to talk to you for a minute. That's all. (laughs) Listen, are you sure you're all right? Oh, yes. Mink been getting on your nerves? Not really. Well, you tell her to behave, or when I come home, she and I are going to have a talk. As a matter of fact, she's been a little fresh lately, and I don't think it's good. Well, she's playing outside. She's fine. Honey, is something wrong? Why, no, I, I... Told you I, I was just thinking about you and wanted to talk, that's all. Nothing wrong with that. Not a thing. You go back to your work, dear. I'll see you soon. All right. What time do you think you'll be home? Oh, about five, maybe a little earlier. Five. Oh. Hey, what? Come on, what? Well, I... I was just thinking. Nothing, really. Just Mink and you and me. <sighs> Goodbye, dear. You... You are okay, aren't you? Yes, I'm fine. Goodbye. Goodbye. Another hour passed, and it was half past four. The day began to wane. The sun lowered in the peaceful blue sky. Shadows lengthened on the green lawn. Outside it was quiet the two little girls more intent than ever upon their endless movement of design and pattern with the implements before them. Mrs. Morris watched from the window, and she had never known Mink to have such powers of concentration. She had turned on the radio and sat drinking a cup of coffee and turned over her thoughts. Children. Children. Children love and hate side by side. Sometimes children love you and hate you all in half a second. Strange children. Do they ever forget or forgive the whippings and the harsh, strict words of command? I wonder. I wonder. How can you forget or forgive those over and above you? Those tall, silly dictators. Those parents. 
Oh, what is it, dear? Have we got a piece of lead pipe and a hammer? Well, I, I don't know. They might be in the garage. What do you want them for? We just need them. Well, if you tell me what for, dear, maybe I, I can... Them. Thanks, Mom. Is, is something wrong? Drill stuff halfway. If we get them all the way through, it'd be easier. Then all the others could come through after him. But can I help? You better get through, Mink. I want you to take your bath before your father comes home. All right. Now, he's coming home early. And Mink... Mink! Mink had disappeared behind the shrubs, and Mrs. Morris knew it was ridiculous to make an issue of it. Besides, what was the issue? Invasion? Drill? Zero hour? Unaccountably, a cool breeze came up, and although normally for that time of year it would have been a relief, Mrs. Morris felt a chill. She closed the window. Time passed. A curious, waiting silence came upon the street, deepening. Then from the living room, Mrs. Morris heard... Five o'clock, zero hour. It had come, and now it had gone. But was the clock right? And Mrs. Morris, knowing how foolish it was, knowing it, went to the phone and dialed. Oh, silly. It's, it's silly. When you hear the tone, the time will be exactly 4.54 and 20 seconds. Four fifty-four and twenty seconds. And Mrs. Morris knew that it wasn't as silly as she had thought, because it wasn't five o'clock yet. Not zero hour yet. Then the car drove up into the driveway. Hi, Mink. How's it going? Hi, Anna. Hi, Daddy. Bye. Hi, Mr. Morris. Got a kiss for your old man? Haven't got time now, Daddy. Well, that's a nice thing. What are you doing? We're playing invasion. Well, your mother in the house? Uh-huh. Okay, be good. I will. There are in a few minutes, Daddy. <laughs> All right, I'll be ready. Mrs. Morris heard him chuckle. Then he stepped up the walk to the front door. Mary? I'm I'm in the living room, dear. Oh, hi. Our daughter didn't have time for a kiss. How about you? A hard day? No, not particularly. Would you like a cocktail? No, you read my mind. Martini? Perfect. Anything exciting happen today? No. Oh, Helen called oh. from Danbury. I, I told her she was crazy, but she just felt like calling. Like you calling me this afternoon crazy, huh? Hey, what was that all about? Well, I told you. I, I just wanted to. Mm. Hey, incidentally, what's this new game the kids are playing? Invasion. That's a nice, depressing thought. Is, is she all right? Come to think of it, she looked kind of funny. She's all right. What's the time, Henry? A mm. couple of minutes after five. Why? No, no, the clock's wrong. By your watch. Mm. Oh, I've got two minutes, too. I'm probably slow. You got something on the stove? No, I, 
I just wondered. Honey. Hey, look at me. What's the matter? Nothing, really. No? No, really. Mink's been up to something. No, of course then not. What? I, I guess I'm a little tired, upset, that's all. You want to go out for dinner? Oh, no, I, I've got a steak here. I'll tell you what, I'll barbecue it. How'll that be? Oh, fine. What? What was that? What? Well, I... I thought I heard something. Well, I didn't. I... I must have been imagining it. Hey, you are jumpy. Why don't you have a drink? It'll do you good. No, I don't want one. What's the time? Mary, what is this? Now, I mean it. Something's wrong, and I want to know. Oh, it's silly. It, it's so silly. I... I'm on edge, that's all. Mary. I am. I don't like this. That kid's done something, hasn't she? I'm going to get her in. No, no, Henry, please don't. She she hasn't. It, it's nothing at all. I just... What's that? I, I don't know. Those kids haven't got anything dangerous out there, have they? I noticed a lot of junk lying around. I, I thought it was a game. She wouldn't have done it herself. They made her do it. What the devil? Well, maybe you better go out and tell them to stop playing now. It's after five. You tell me to put off the invasion until tomorrow. Tell her. It is coming from outside. What are they up to? I'd better take a look. Mink! Mink! Good Lord! Bombs! Bombs! They're bombing! No! No, it, it's upstairs. I know it is. In the attic. That's where it is. Mary! Mary, it is not up there. Mary! He ran after her, confused, not a little frightened. She seemed to know something. In the attic. Her mind had worked that quickly. Any excuse to get him away from the outside, to get him upstairs to the attic in time. And outside, there were more explosions, and they could hear the children screaming with delight. It is not in the attic. It's outside. Mink's out there. What's the matter with you? No, no. I'll show you. Hurry! Get inside, quick. Now we're safe until tonight. Are you crazy? Why did you throw that key away? Oh, maybe we can sneak out later. Maybe we can escape. For heaven's sake, the kid's out there. Do you want her to get killed? Oh, you don't know. You don't. We've got to stay here. We've got to. It's horrible. We've got to. You've got to stay here with At me. At this point, I don't know how the devil I can get out. Where's oh. that light? Oh, be quiet. Please, be quiet. They'll hear us. They'll find us. Oh, Henry, please. Well, who's going to answer the telephone? There's that noise again. Oh. It's in this house. Mary, what is this? Mary, what's happening? You know, now answer me. Stop it, Mary, stop it. Somebody's downstairs. Who's down there? Who? Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, hush. Please, please be quiet. They might go away. Please, please. And between his wife's terror and the electric humming from below, Mr. Morris felt a great fear. They trembled together in silence in the attic. Mr. and Mrs. Morris, parents of the little girl. Then they heard steps coming up the stairs. And a voice. Mommy! Daddy! Where are you? And a queer, cold light became visible under the door crack. A strange odor and the alien sound of eagerness in Mink's voice was almost more than they could bear. Each wanted to scream. And another sound. And the attic lock melted. Mink. Mink with bright little eyes and tousled hair peered inside. And behind her, 
tall, wavering blue shadows. Frightful shadows. Suspense, in which Miss Isa Ashdown starred in tonight's presentation of Zero Hour. Suspense is produced and directed by Anthony Ellis. Tonight's script was written by Ray Bradbury and adapted by Mr. Ellis. The music was composed by Leith Stevens and Lucian Morowick and conducted by Wilbur Hatch. Featured in the cast were Parley Bear, Paula Winslow, Eve McVeigh, John Daner, and Beverly Handley. Sound patterns were by Bill James and Ray Kemper. This is the CBS Radio Network. Suspense with Zero Hour by Ray Bradbury, starring Isa Ashdown from April 5th, 1955. Also in the cast, Parley Bear, Paula Winslow, and Beverly Hanley is heard over CBS. Stick around, I'll give you our lineup for episode 63 of the Classic Radio Theater after this short break. Next time on episode 63 of the Classic Radio Theater, brought to you by the Bradford Exchange, we'll hear two detective episodes of Pat Novak for Hire, starring Jack Webb, so don't miss it. To reach me and to learn more about the Classic Radio Club, visit ClassicRadioClub.com. Be sure to tune in to our next show. Thanks for listening. <laughs>